Hey, and welcome to this week's episode of Live Your Own Fit Podcast, where I have Phil Maffetone. Um, The absolute pleasure was all mine. I've known Phil for quite a few years now and been lucky enough to speak to him on a few occasions personally and interviewed him publicly before. He's such a nice guy and such a legend of the health and fitness performance world. He's been a clinician, he's been a coach, and he's been an innovator, and he's arguably still all three of those and just an absolute genius. The stuff that he was talking about in the late 70s that he started working on is still the same stuff that he and some of the other top guys in these fields are working on now. It hasn't changed. He's been on top of his game around these topics for decades and decades. So it's just an absolute pleasure to have Phil Maffetone on our podcast today. So please enjoy and make sure you make a note of anything that you want to ask questions further about. Take a screenshot when that point in the conversation is on um, so you know what time frame to come back to or make a little note in your iPhone so that you can then send that in to us and we can follow it up for you or I can answer your question for you personally. That'd be great to hear some feedback and further questions from this episode. So here it is, Dr. Phil Maffetone. Please enjoy. Phil, it's fantastic to chat to you again. It's been a little while since we last spoke. Um, always forever grateful for the time that you gave me a couple of years ago when I was trying to figure out you know, some of the key issues, the primary issues with my health. And, you know, you're a huge help then. It really helped me go from nowhere to, to on the road to learning. And, um, but often with a lot of things that you say to me or other people, it's almost too simple for, for us simpletons to understand at the time. So you might say something like, I think you said to me something like, no, don't don't worry about your gut health. the The gut will heal when you're. The gut will do what it's meant to do when you're feeling healthy. And it, you know, two years later, I start to un- fully understand the big picture of all of that. And um, so, just trying to learn and see things in the big picture is one of the key takeaways that I've got from you. And I'm still adding to that big picture. Yeah, thanks. Thanks uh, for having me, Pete. And it's great to see you again. And uh, uh, yeah, the big picture is is really the uh, the important component because people tend to um, like with the rest of society, people tend to focus on uh, one thing. You know, people want to go into some little box, mm. and gut health. Um, gets popular for a while and then it disappears and then it's fasting and then that disappears and then it's who knows um, you know the trendiness of society and in sports um, it's really no different Uh, athletes jump on this bandwagon and that bandwagon and um, and as a result of getting, you know, zeroing in on that one thing, Mm. uh, uh, people forget the big picture. And that big picture is really important because we are a big picture. Our health and Mm. fitness is made up of so many different things. And if we do three of them and neglect 40 of them, then, you know, things are not going to work. They might appear to be working because we get excited when we start some 
new we thing. We get some hormones and yeah, we get nice. we get yeah, and and um, we you know we rev up our sympathetic nervous system and yeah. wow, this is working already. It's only been an hour since I. <laughs> and that um, I have a have a note that we'll I'll go to now then because it ties in well. Um, a paper that you did with Paul Larson last year um, was around system one and system two approaches to, and that's basically how society approaches things. And system one was very much um, sort of ego driven, go with the herd mentality, that quick hit of release, that adding a label to something, all of those kind of, you know, exogenous type influences as opposed to system two, which was much more around how do I feel doing this long-term? Am I, as you say, is my nervous system getting ramped up or am I doing something for my health at the same time as exercising and my mindset and the benefits of being out in the, in the woods, in the environment, as opposed to being in the gym with the computer screens telling me where I'm ranking. So tell us a little bit about yeah, system one yeah. and two. Well, you know, that's a, that was a very important paper for me. I always uh, talked about um, that component. Um, I didn't use system one, system two, because I didn't, I, I didn't want to get into the, uh, such a, a, a big brain issue with a lot of people, but it was um, the concept of uh what people think of in marketing what what do people think of when they're trying to sell us something and they say the same kind of thing well you sell the the sizzle not the you know not the steak because the sizzle grabs people um they smell it they 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 almost taste it once they smell it and you know now you you've got them but if you say hey i've got this really good grass fed organic steak and we're gonna we're gonna cook it in a just perfect for your particular needs. You know now you've lost them because um, you know. And so when when a I mean everything from a piece of exercise equipment to a, a new kind of bike is really nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. But a new kind of bike, uh, running shoes, a new um, piece of equipment you can use in the pool. Um, mm. you know, racing gear, listening gear, uh, stuff to put on your skin. Mm. It's all about that quick emotional connection that that the the have manufacturer read, um, or the retail wants to wants yeah. to get to. Have you read Thinking Fast and Slow? Because that's a great book for that concept. That's exactly what, yeah. yeah the, so the original uh, system one, system two was applied to um, economics. Mm. And the guy who did that won a Nobel Prize. And then thinking fast and slow, um, he applied it um, uh, to other things in our society. And, and um, did he win a Nobel Prize? He he might have also won a, a Nobel Prize, um, but got a lot of recognition. Um, yeah. And I applied the same concepts because it's the brain. How does yeah. our brain decide to do something? I applied it to health and fitness. Yeah. And, it's amazing. Um, which I it I had always been doing that. I I would always make fun of you know just do it for example, mm. uh, you know just do it. Don't think, just follow my lead. 
Uh, you don't have to think, just do it, um, which is really, it, it's a frightening idea. And more frightening is the fact that so many people just do it. Yeah. But the um, court, you know, the and I, always, I always said, don't, don't just do it, do it right. And yeah. that's, that's the system two part. Yeah. Um, and then touching on that, um, also was going to say uh, a little bit about doing it a certain way. Like you do this movement this way, hold your hips in that position, move your arms in that way, um, has taken us all away from the ability to just move. And certainly in this last uh, few months of, of kind of everything being closed and, and changing my exercise routine, I've been doing more things in the gym Jamie and I have been creating workout videos and I've been telling my clients what they can do at home instead of swimming. And I, it's, it's hard to get that message across of you can literally do any movement you want. If you've got a pair of dumbbells, you can move your arms in a thousand different patterns and any of them are great for strength and mobility. And it's trying to get people out of their head of well, I've seen somebody do it that way. So that's the way that I'm going to do it every time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cookbook approach. That's the system one cookbook approach that um, is an easy sell. And it's like a diet. Here's a diet. You do this, that, and that. And everybody should do it because it works for everybody. The fact is it hardly works for anybody. Yet after decades, you know, after we're talking about 50 years of um, a lot of diet uh, books and programs that are out there, huge companies that evolved out of it. And the fact is 95% of people who go on these diets, who follow these cookbook routines, don't benefit from them. And exercise routines are the same thing. You know, do this, do that. M move your arm this way, not not this way, but this way, you know, yeah. um, it, it's really, it's really a shame. And it really takes away the personalization of health and fitness. Mm -hmm. We're, we're all individuals and we all need to follow our own thing because mm -hmm. our body, our brain knows what we need. And I, I, yeah. um, worked that way when I was training athletes, I didn't give them a schedule. I didn't give them a diet. I said, um, let's do more of this. Uh, let, let's, let's cut back on the day before your long ride because you want to go into that more fresh. Let's uh, not eat much of that stuff because even though all your friends are eating it and they think they feel great, it upsets your gut. Um, yeah. Oh, gee, I, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> so how... So it's personalization that's really a, a very important concept. Yeah. Um, and so we'll just... I'll go from a few points there that were great, but I'll jump into the food that you just mentioned. So let's talk about why we would choose certain foods the day before an important session because of certain inflammation or aerobic capacity impairment that may occur from what we did the day before or the morning of for our breakfast before that aerobic session. Yeah. And, and I have to begin the answer with the word tradition because um, uh, a lot of these, uh, cookbook approaches, these, these, uh, here's what everybody should do, um, are, are traditional. They've, they've been around so long, they've become traditional. So, um, when, when people think about what they're doing and they say, oh, I've been doing it because 
I've always been doing it and my friends all do it and, and, you know, but why are you doing it? You know, that's, that's the, the question. And so traditional uh, routines are very popular and uh, specifically uh, to your, your question, the, the worst thing you can do the day before uh, a race, the, the morning of a race, the morning of a workout, the day before workout, or any day for that matter, yeah. is eat refined carbohydrates because they impair our function on every level. You can, you can talk about the metabolic components, the physical components, the mental emotional components, cardiovascular components, et cetera, et cetera. And you can zero in on um, inflammation, which certainly is a is a really big thing, and and refined carbohydrates, sugar will promote inflammation uh, rather quickly, mm. uh, mainly through zero in on insulin yeah, and hormonal I mean, responses. Yeah, all of that mechanism. We can zero in on energy and say, well, if you're eating sugar, you're reducing fat burning, therefore you're going to rely on sugar and use up your glycogen stores um, much quicker, fairly quick. Mm. Uh, we could we could talk about you know the so many things and so that's a that's a requirement to first be healthy and fit and second perform your best and a lot of people think that they have to have the carbohydrate breakfast before training because they need to top up their energy for the long session that's a complete yeah, myth, correct? It's a complete myth, and it's it's again another example of a of a tradition that um, has evolved from where it's evolved because the companies that sell refined carbohydrates told us that for years and years. They didn't just tell the athletes who were out there training, but they told everyone in the world from the the schools. I mean. I was already in college when I was being told that the human body is a glucose-based system. That's, mm -hmm. that's how we survive. And it wasn't until later on in college when I said, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm looking at all these studies about oxidation of fatty acids. Um, why doesn't anybody talk about that or why aren't there more things written about that and, and i finally had one of my uh, exercise physiology tech textbooks i think mcgardle um where he talked about the aerobic system which nobody ever talked about aerobics from a system standpoint and he said well the aerobic system is our long-term energy system because it burns fat for energy and that kind of that pieced together a whole lot of stuff I had in my head for a couple of years and just couldn't figure out. So can you tell us why that fear of I'm going to run out of energy if I don't eat a high carb breakfast, can you tell us how the whole, the basics, really simplistic version for everyone of why they're not going to run out of energy? Because we have more energy, the leanest among us have, has more energy um, stored in body fat as 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 little as we may have. If it's healthy body fat, if you're under fat, it's a different story. But a healthy person with healthy fat cells has enough energy 
to take them hundreds and hundreds of miles, whether it's walking or running or biking or swimming or whatever. And so um, if we can tap into that reservoir of energy, uh, what a deal. I mean, who's going to run out of energy? Um, and so that should be the focus. And instead, sugar has been the focus because that's what companies have told us. We need sugar. Uh, they're still telling people that today. We need sugar because of energy. Um, and that that myth is perpetuated over and over again. And so in the back of our head, we're thinking we need that that carbohydrate energy uh, when in fact we don't. The, 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 um, the, the one exception is during an event when consuming um, some a mix of uh, either as a drink or a solid of uh, say carbohydrates, fat and protein, depending on what works for you. Um, that carbohydrate is gonna be used for immediate energy uh, during your race. But mm. you, 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 the, the game is can you burn as much fat as possible so that when you're in a race, you don't need anything. You don't need to eat or drink anything except water until way later in the race when earlier before you were a good fat burner, you had to start eating things uh, much earlier. Yeah. And I think is it, you would say that because when people who are on a higher carb diet, they eat carbs every day, they may train at a higher intensity every day as well. And so when they have the carbohydrates in the morning, they probably feel a little bit better because they're not good at fat burning their blood sugar may actually be low in the morning if they've exhausted their body a bit. So when they have the sugars, they actually feel better and therefore they're able to demand more energy, seeing as energy is only exists in a, a demand sense. So their perception is that, oh, if I have the sugars, it gives me energy. And, but really it's just the perception of how they feel, which therefore they can demand the energy and that continues that cycle of why they believe the carbohydrates help. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to to, to put it. And and you know uh, the perception is is um, is a is a subjective thing. Um, you know, it's like the rate of perceived exertion. Mm. That's a perception, um, and you can change that perception without changing anything else, uh, just by thinking differently or or being a better fat burner for example so you can do more work at the at less uh, of an effort um if you're a better fat burner and what does that do to your perceived exertion it, it makes it easier you think yet you're working out harder uh you're, you're you're pushing more power or you're running at a faster pace whatever whatever you're measuring um so that perception is is tricky it's it's um it's subjective and I like to have some objective measure. So uh, I, I often say to people, do anything you want, but measure, do something objective and measure whether you're benefiting or not. So for example, if you want to eat a high carb diet, go ahead, do it, but measure yourself and see if that causes you to get faster at the same heart rate and if it if it does, then you're okay. But it usually doesn't. You know, if you're 18 years old, it might. Uh, uh, but you know, as we 
as we get into our 20s, and certainly by the time we're 30, we tend to be more, um, we're, we're less insulin sensitive. We become insulin resistant, so insulin resistant over time. And as a result, we should be consuming less and less carbohydrate because in order to keep up with a good balanced metabolism, that's the, the remedy. And, um, and, and, and that's another important thing that people need to understand that the body's always changing and we have to keep up with those changes. That, the word metabolism, it, it kind of plagues my mind and it has done for a couple of years, going down the whole changing my energy source and, and, and being very, very low carbohydrates. The two big things that were in my head were what is energy? And I've kind of, I, I understand energy pretty well now, but metabolism is, it's hard to find information on metabolism because everything sort of, it's difficult to measure. You've got to be basically in a closed room and, and measure every breath that comes out, I, I believe. Um, there's not a lot of testing on it. So everybody just says, well, you're burning 2000 calories a day as a standard, you know, rate. But I do believe that that changes completely when you become very efficient, very aerobically efficient and very fat burning efficient. Um, and I don't think I'm burning anywhere near 2000 calories on a sedentary day for myself anymore. Um, uh, what's your, what could you explain metabolism to us a bit, you know, in a way that we can use? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of become a buzzword. It, it's a, it, you know, metabolism is, is, is this vast thing of, uh, you know, physical uh, components, biochemical components, even mm. mental components. Mm. And um, there are many parts of metabolism that we can talk about. But when it comes to energy, um, essentially, we use, uh, in the human body, we use ATP as energy. And what, what metabolism does is it takes um, the foods we eat, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, and it, uh, it, it changes them into ATP. It goes through a bunch of biochemical cycles like the Krebs cycle, and it spits out ATP, and that's what we use for energy. Not a, uh, not a real practical thing to, to, to say to people. Um, that's a biochemistry course. Um, instead, I, I say to people, look, you, you take your, your food and you convert it to energy. It's ATP, but in the form of calories, but calories of what? That's really what's most important for people to understand and they'll often say well i'm gonna i'm gonna you know do this ride uh because uh it has a lot of hills and i i burn more energy and um and i know what they're saying they're saying i can go home and eat a lot of junk food because i burned off a lot of energy and so now i can eat more but but i always say well calories of what and now you've usually stumped them because they think well a calorie's a calorie right like a calorie, you know, you know what I mean, calories. No, I'm asking you calories of what? And it's calories of fat or calories of sugar, or more importantly, what is the mix of your fat burning, sugar burning? What, what kind of mix are you, um, uh, are, are you doing with that ride? Uh, are you burning a lot more sugar than fat? If you are, um, it's a big stress. Um, and if you're burning more fat, 
it's a it's a healthy thing to do and that's another way to describe metabolism because that that fat and that sugar is burned as for for energy in, in a in through the the metabolism and if you are an efficient fat burner i mean there's there's so many more recycled byproducts of fat such as ketones and all these other products that i don't understand fully but there's a lot of things going on so it's fair to say then would it that if you are burning fat a one fat calorie is likely to give you a lot more atp energy than if you're because when you're so carbohydrate driven and everything is through the sugars all those other ways of utilizing recycled energy molecules aren't there hence why you get so much better over time as a fat burner it's not you know one week and you're at your optimum it, it might take several months to be your optimum ability to produce energy from sure, fat yeah. is that fair to say yeah, we get very different we can get twice energy. the energy yeah we can get twice the energy from fat um mm. but that's sort of a you know a general again we're, we're talking about biochemistry um it doesn't it it doesn't help somebody who's trying to figure this out in terms of well what should I eat? Um, when you say you can get twice as much energy from fat, other other than hey let's reduce the carbohydrates and increase your fat, and therefore you have the potential through your metabolism to get more than you know to get a lot more energy. On paper, it's more than double the amount for, as carbohydrate, but we, it's the mix of carbohydrate and fat. And and uh, as our intensity goes up, our fat burning comes down a bit. Our carbohydrate burning, our glucose burning goes up. But still, at high intensity, we burn potentially, if our metabolism is working well, at high intensity, we still can burn a lot of fat. I always remember that. And I quote it all the time that you said i think it was in one of your books that even you know a 400 meter track race is still at such an aerobic capacity that you know there, there's still so many aerobic functions going on even in even in a one minute race in a one minute race uh yeah uh there's a lot going on and and you know a, a, a mile event is um mm. has a tremendous amount of aerobic metabolism that has to be enlisted and so if if your aerobic system is not working um you're you're asking for trouble and you know it, we also have to look at the big picture uh in a race because when you uh go to the track to race uh one mile or or even a, like a 5k uh you're you're going to spend a good amount of time warming up and you don't want to warm up and use your glycogen stores. That's what people do quite often. And so warming up slow and easy, if you have a good metabolism, means you're going to burn a lot of fat and your glycogen stores will not really be touched um, until the race. So, uh, again, that's a, a good example of the big picture. Yeah, and that one-mile race, for example, if you're on the start line, on the start line, there's a couple of um, 
influences. Uh, if we go down the central governor theory just a little bit, you've basically got that the, the central governor, your brain is going to control your energy demand and your ability to have the output. But the other thing I want to focus on is the state of your cells and your health on that start line. So the impact of inflammation or oxidative stress, those kind of things on aerobic capacity. And I think you touched on this in your paper that you just recently came out with, with Paul Larson, a recent paper about math. Um, was talking about the influences that you can have in your body that to affect your aerobic performance. Yeah, that that moment on the starting line is the is the the end result of uh, days and weeks and months and really years of not just training, but eating and regulating stress. Uh, yeah. In a sense, you're you're you've been training your brain to regulate stress, and by doing that, uh, at the starting line, when you're very stressed, you're on high alert. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, are you gonna uh, let that stress hurt you or help you? And um, the brain uh, at at that point, the brain. Uh, if it has the um, uh, all the raw materials, if it has all the training and all the the understanding of what needs to be done, it doesn't. Mm. That's um, a that's a a really important thing in in terms of when people say, "Well, I, I I'm not at my athletic potential yet. How could I reach that that high level of aerobic potential?" That's how you do it. You let your brain do it because you can't analyze that concept of, you know, reaching my, that your brain knows a lot more than your conscious mind knows. Mm. And I've got a couple of clients at the moment, um, triathletes. And one guy is my age, really, you know, he's, he's done a lot of activities over his lifetime. Um, he's not overweight, but he basically has aerobic deficiency syndrome. Um, caused by factors of um, diet, um, his own sensitivities to a relatively good diet, but he's more sensitive than other people. So that's caused more inflammation, which has led to detraining his body over the years of exercise that he's been doing. So I'll ask you about aerobic deficiency syndrome in a minute. But my first point um, was what I'm getting him to do is actually just sort of jog eight minutes or nine minutes and then take a forced one minute break so that his nervous system has to re re recover and relax so that I get him to focus on his breathing. He started nose breathing and that's helping him a lot as well. I, you can talk about nose breathing. Um, so I'm basically making sure that he isn't going to do a 60 minute run where his nervous system without him even being aware of it almost because over time, you become so accustomed to a heightened nervous system, you don't even notice when it's happening. Um, right. But yeah, he's really finding just that forced one or two minute break, breathe into the belly, relax his nervous system, relax his mind, and then start fresh. And I mean, that's what I did in 2012 in my training. I would find a point on my long run where the tension built up and I'd just take a minute or two. And then in the race, when I walked an aid station, I could reset instantly because I trained my muscle memory connected to my brain to do that 
reset and relaxation instantly. And, and that's what you were saying. It takes practice to, you've got to be in that state of mind while exercising to get that positive muscle and mind memory for the race. Yeah, yeah, good points um, with the stopping uh, for a moment because it, it, it um, you know, what we do or don't do in training is going to affect our race, and that's a, a great example. Um, the aerobic system, you know, we, we, we have these old traditional definitions of aerobic and anaerobic. And um, they came from uh, microbes, you know, some microbes use oxygen and they're referred to as aerobic and some don't and they're referred to as anaerobic. And it's, you know, I, I don't know why that concept is so difficult um, to let go of and replace it with something real, something practical, something that we can relate to which is that aerobic is fat burning and anaerobic is sugar burning. And, um, and you know, people, people want to associate it with breathing because of oxygen and, you know, they bring in, they bring in breathing. And I say, well, uh, so when you're doing anaerobic stuff, if you don't use oxygen, that means you could hold your breath. And you know, then they then they start thinking, well, not really. So it's simple. Aerobic is is the ability to metabolize fats for energy, and that takes place in the slow twitch red aerobic muscle fibers that are inner. You know, they're interwoven throughout uh, almost all of our skeletal muscles. The jaw muscles are the exception, and um, and those slow twitch red aerobic muscle fibers burn fat for energy and it allows them to be our endurance muscles. And it does more than give us energy. It allows um, our body to work all day long. It allows us to sit here for an hour or two uh, having this conversation. Um, it allows us to stand, I have a standing workstation when i write i'm usually on my feet uh and working i stand all day writing sometimes and it's my aerobic muscle fibers that allow that to happen because they don't fatigue and not only that but the aerobic muscle fibers they're called red muscle fibers in part because they have a tremendous amount of uh blood vessels so there's a lot of blood flow that goes through those red aerobic muscle fibers very very important for the whole body, obviously, but they also are a very important source of immune function. They actually metabolize um, oxygen and prevent oxidative stress. In addition, those fibers interlaced among other anaerobic fibers, and there's different subcategories which we, we won't get into, but the aerobic muscle fibers bring circulation to and from those aerobic or those anaerobic muscle fibers because they are not endowed with circulation and, and they need really they they rely on aerobic muscles for better function so even if we're um a sprinter 100 meters we need a good aerobic system because those sprint fibers 
need to be catered to. They need to be healthy, and the aerobic system does that um, quite well. Mm. And so um, uh, when we don't develop those aerobic muscle fibers and the metabolism that goes along with it and the circulation that's part of it and the immune system, et cetera, we are deficient. And, and that's referred to as the aerobic deficiency syndrome, something I call coined um, back in, I don't know when, the early to mid eighties maybe. Yeah. Um, and I, when I would use it, people would just look at me weird. Like, are you talking about AIDS? No, no. Aerobic <laughs> deficiency syndrome. Um, so, it, it, and that you know, can be just, that can even be um, a non-athlete can have it, ADS. Anybody can can mm. develop it because whether we're a performing athlete or not, we all have the same kind of bodies. We have the same physical uh, biochemical structures, and so the same metabolisms. Athletes are just trained more. Some of them um, train better. Some of them. And, and so, yeah, when we, when we don't exercise, uh, people become aerobically deficient because they've not exercised. And many athletes, if they exercise the anaerobic part of the equation, they may neglect their aerobic system and as a result become aerobically deficient in, in a very similar way. If somebody doesn't exercise but eats a low carbohydrate healthy diet they're still going to be improving their aerobic system though they will to an extent mm -hmm. uh very much so but that's only because the food takes precedence the food is a primary driver of our <laughs> physical biochemical and mental emotional health the food is a major driver of our metabolism immediately as soon as we start eating you're affecting the, the metabolism. So, um, and, and for the opposite reason, people who work out correctly, perfectly for their needs, but, but don't eat well, uh, they're not going to benefit from, from that training because the, the, the poor diet takes precedent and, and impairs the metabolism despite the exercise. One of the papers I wrote um, a couple of years ago uh, was uh, a paper on the overfat pandemic in the U.S. And um, it and was Australia's uh, not Australia's not far behind. Not far behind at all. Um, I think Paul, yes, Paul was also a, a co-author um, on that. Paul Larson. And what I found was all this great data, and and there was a particular component that no one was looking at and it was that the cdc in the u.s showed that the population was exercising more than ever they were increasing the prevalence of uh, aerobic exercise and strength exercise while at the same time they were getting more and more over fat and that that says it right there. I mean, that that's what we've been seeing clinically <clears throat> for um, forever. I mean, I, I saw that in the beginning, and, and wondered why. It was really, you know, it took a while to figure that out. You've been developing or have developed a breath testing machine that basically is going to 
be able to test somebody's metabolism just through what they're exhaling in their breath. And you were saying that this would be extremely beneficial for hospitals. Um, so the main, one of the main issues going along with overfat is that a lot of the population is pre-diabetic, which is heading towards diabetes or they've already got diabetes. Um, and all those health benefits that you mentioned just before about having the aerobic system all relate to some of the issues that you see in patients that have diabetes that have a very poor aerobic metabolism that are very much sugar burners. Um, can you just explain why again that eating a high carbohydrate diet as every hospital would give somebody is going to impair somebody who's in hospital and, and your machine that can test and help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the machine is basically a, a small version of what people know of as uh, the metabolic cart in a laboratory. So if you want to go in the laboratory and everybody has seen these, um, you know, these face masks with the tubes coming out and you're on a treadmill and you're, um, you're hooked up to a computer. What, what's going on there is they are measuring your oxygen uptake and your carbon dioxide output. So when you, when you compare the oxygen and the carbon dioxide, when you, when you take those numbers, divide the oxygen into the carbon dioxide, you end up with the percentage of fat and sugar burning for energy. So that, that's where it comes from. And um, um, yeah, I, 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 uh, we're, we're developing uh, this technology and I think it's going to be very valuable for everyone because it, it's not just athletes that need to worry about fat burning, it's everybody. And hospitals check for that uh, process by doing a blood test, they they measure what's called blood gases, and they want to look at the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels because uh, certain um, shifts in that are are very important to know. And sometimes they get to the point, especially in surgery or in, in the emergency department, if they've got a, a car crash um, person, they they want to see right away what are these blood gases, and depending on what they are, we may go this way with our care or that way. Um, so it's, it's very important for everyone, but in terms of what, you know, that doesn't mean as an athlete, you need to go into the lab and get yourself measured because uh, you can't go in the lab on a regular basis. So, and there's a way of figuring out if you're improving, I mentioned it in the very beginning, which is uh, monitoring your ability to uh, run faster or generate more power at the same uh, level of intensity at the same heart rate. We can come back to what that really means, but um, the the um, the question that many people have is, am I burning enough fat? That's what you know. I mean, I can I can hear the the relief from some of the listeners because they've been thinking, am I burning enough fat? I don't understand. You know. Um, if you're not healthy and fit, and if you're not running really performance-wise, per, you know, racing really well, for example, you're probably not burning enough fat. If you have excess body fat, you're not burning enough fat. Mm. If you have signs and symptoms of 
anything abnormal with health and fitness. You have allergies, asthma, uh, you have gut problems, you don't sleep well, um, uh, you had, um, you know, your doctor said your blood pressure is starting to elevate, your blood sugar, in, like in prediabetes. Um, you're clearly not burning enough fat. And the, the easiest way to monitor that is to measure yourself. And in a number of the papers I've written on, on over fat, I talk about the waist to height ratio. And that's the best indicator. So you can go to the lab and see if you're burning fat, uh, enough fat during different levels of intensity. But there's a better test that you can do at home on a regular basis. And in terms of whether you're over fat or not, measure your waist at the belly button. And your waist should be less than half your height. And measure your height because whatever it says on your driver's license may not be right. <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen that too many times. So I always have to say it. Um, people are usually shorter than they are measurably. <laughs> and so going a little bit into the aerobic deficiency syndrome, that you mentioned there um, that there's a few signs that you're not burning enough fat. And one of those would be that if you are jogging and your heart rate basically goes from, you know, resting to above math, or let's just use the equation as an example, which is your, your guideline is 180 minus your age is a starting point for the majority people to determine roughly where they're burning a, their most amount of fat and being the most aerobic. But for people that suddenly go from resting to jogging and that heart rate goes really high, it's a sign that there's, they're not burning enough fat. It's a sign that they're aerobically deficient. Mm. Uh, now, they could have a heart problem. They could have a, you know, an autonomic nervous system problem. But for most people, it's a sign that their aerobic system isn't working and they're not burning enough fat. And that could it's be from all those... I mean, um, in the paper that, like I said, we mentioned that came out this year, you go through a lot of those factors being lifestyle, sleep, diet, stress, emotionally, all of these factors that can be affecting your ability to burn fat and be aerobic. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of them, but mm -hmm. um, rather than confuse people, rather than starting to list all these things and discuss them, which I do all the time when I, when I lecture and when, when you and I talk. And, um, but but to, to, to make it really clear to people, the number one problem is almost always too much refined carbohydrate or even natural carbohydrate. If you get rid of all the junk food, all the refined carbohydrate, and you're eating a lot of fruit and a lot of whole grain, real whole grains, not the phony because it says whole grain on the package. Um, uh, that could still be a problem because, again, as we become more insulin resistant, we don't tolerate those natural carbohydrates, even though they're natural. And as a result, what happens really is we convert more and more of those carbohydrates into fat 
and, and that fat goes into storage, of course. Mm -hmm. And because we're eating more carbohydrate than we can tolerate, we make more insulin. That insulin prevents us from burning the stored fat for energy, and we become more and more overfat. And that would, excuse me, that would relate into if you if you added high intensity exercise on top of that, you would say that you are detraining the system while exercising. So, if you are out the door at a jog, but your heart rate goes up to one hundred and sixty, and you're forty years old, are you detraining the system while you're actually trying to get healthier? That's right. And, uh, you know, another way to look at it and, and a way I sometimes explain it is that, it, and, and this, is, this is what happens to people when they first start running, they do the 180 formula. And by the way, the 180 formula is a lot more detailed than that. You need yep. to look at uh, the specific details to, so that you can personalize it. It's a personalized formula. Mm. If, you, if you go out at that sub-max heart rate for training and you, you can hardly move, and you're frustrated, um, what that reflects is the state of your aerobic system and your state of fat burning. So it and, means and you have state a poor aerobic system and, and, and your state of health because the aerobic system and fat burning affect your health uh, way more than uh, hard training, which may affect your fitness. And that's where the concept of you know, athletes fit but unhealthy comes from. Um, because we can, we can sacrifice our health for more fitness just by training more and more. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm known for half joking, only half joking with athletes that, um, if you want to perform your best in, in, uh, in two or three months, uh, train hard every day, hope that you don't fall apart and you can get to the starting line and then you'll be at this peak, you know, you'll be, your, your sympathetic nervous system will be so revved up, you know, uh, unfortunately you could collapse in competition in that state. Um, and you'd have to be very lucky not to, and you'd have to be very lucky to be able to survive that. So it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, let's build the sub max system, not the max system, because most of us are in a sport that is a submax sport. You're not you're not maxed out in an Ironman. Mm. You're 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 racing as best as you can, relatively slow. Mm. You're going slow. It's a submax event. So if 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 you're dependent on your aerobic system, it makes sense to train the aerobic system. Yeah, train train for what you want to do in the race. Yeah, exactly. Um, so coming to that, a lot of people. Um, in the past, like when I say I'm doing math, and this was probably a couple of years ago, and a lot of the questions were, well, are you now going to, are you going to race at your math? And there's, there's two answers to that. One is yes, and one is no, because some people are asking math as in 180 minus my age, and that's all they see is the equation when they see maximum aerobic function, math. Um, and the other answer is yes, if I'm answering, yes, I'll compete at my maximum aerobic function, which is not necessarily 180 minus my age. And so I'm going to ask about Mark Allen, for example, or, or myself um, in, in the future, I guess, is that as he 
got fitter and fitter and healthier and healthier at in terms of his aerobic capacity and fat burning capacity, his heart rate and ability to stay at his, as you say, submax or maximum aerobic function level throughout the race, you know, his heart rate was above 180 minus his age, but he was maintaining the ability to burn mostly fat. And so can you tell people why it matters? Well, let's, yeah, let's look at, let's look at the details because that's true and untrue. Um, uh, so one thing I learned um, with Mark um, very early uh, in, in, in working together with him before his first Ironman win, and I think um, uh, this was the, for me, this was the clincher to have him ready. I thought he was ready the year before and even the year before that. And he had some mechanical problems, uh, but that's another story. Um, uh, what what we, we learned to do in those early days was to become fit enough with the aerobic system so that swimming doesn't bring the heart rate up much at all. You're horizontal, you're, you're in the water, uh, you're moving fast, but your fitness level is high, so you can swim really hard without the heart rate getting high. So you don't risk Rel becoming, Relatively small muscle groups. Yeah, yeah. You don't risk the, there's no gravity. You don't risk the, the, the potential of uh, using your glycogen stores. The big question was the bike. How do we get through this bike thing? And that's where it kind of came together. And I realized that what Mark needed to do was ride at his MAF heart rate, the whole ride. And how, old, means, how old was he around this time? I don't know. It probably was around 30, he was, early 30s. I think he was, think he was 155 heart rate. Oh, right. So he was uh, like, yeah. In those early, early days, I think the very 20, first time yeah. I, I, I had a monitor for him to wear uh, before the wireless monitors came out even was on the track at um, USC, at, at the university there. Um, and I remember setting it at 155. And uh, I don't know the rationale for that, but that's what I chose. And so, um, he was relatively um, young. Yeah, he was he was young, but we didn't do anything different for all six of those Ironman wins after that. Mm. He followed the same strategy. So he gets on his bike after the swim. He's got his heart monitor in front of him now. The wireless monitors came out, so he could he could just look down and see his heart rate through the whole ride. He would stay at 155. And if you, if you look at the, um, that big first win of his, when he beat Dave, um, I, I don't remember if it was NBC, whatever, whoever was filming that, um, there's a shot of him on the bike about halfway through the ride. And he's, He's there, right? And he's he's kind of looking at his heart rate, and he'll glance over and see somebody pass him. Glance over and see some, and he's you know you you could see the discipline, because I think it was at that point, for me it was very clear for me, and I 
I had Mark convinced that that's what he should do, but I, it wasn't until that win that it was quite convincing. Um, mm -hmm. And so what it meant is that he could ride much better the first half of the ride than the second half because fatigue begins to set in and now he's actually slowing down um, a little bit uh, on the second half of the bike. And But when he gets off the bike and he starts to run, where is he at? He hasn't yet become anaerobic. And now two things. One, he could do anything he wants, which for, for me in explaining to an athlete what that means, it means let your brain guide you because your brain knows exactly what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Push the envelope, um, you know, but, but be guided by your brain. And number two, um, just, just, you know, when you're, when you're feeling bad, make some changes, shorten your stride, take a salt tablet, which I used, you know, throughout my career. Um, but, but do, do what you want on the run, uh, because one thing, and then take your monitor off because one thing that happens at that point in the race, after that many hours of fatigue, you're, you're fatiguing, despite the fact that you're aerobic until the end of the bike, you're fatiguing. And the heat as and, well. And the heat, the, you know, you're dehydrated. You're, and what, what that means is the heart rate no longer is a good practical guide. Yeah. So take your monitor off. We don't care what your heart rate is. You'll feel it if it goes up. You'll know when you can increase the pace. You'll know you can increase the pace on the downhills because you've trained to do that. You know you can slow down on the uphills because you've trained to do that. Mm. And, and the results we, were pretty clear. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, he would have been fatiguing towards the end of the race. And I just want to explain to people that fatigue is going to occur no matter what. I mean, you will produce oxidative stress while exercising, no matter what level of <clears throat> exercising. And then that oxidative stress will inhibit a little bit of ATP energy production. Um, but the difference, I guess, would you have approached it that some of that stress is accumulating in muscles that you're using more for the bike. And then when you get off to run, some of those muscles aren't as fatigued. They don't have as much stress built up in them. Um, is that correct? But then uh, to carry on with that, then potentially some muscles that are fatigued from the bike make others overwork a bit on the run. Um, and people you know, would often cramp, like hamstrings often cramp as opposed to any other muscle. Yeah, you use different muscles, obviously, on the bike uh, compared to the run. You use a lot more muscle fibers on the run because you've got uh, gravity stress uh, mm. primarily. And so, um, and, and people who train with heart monitors know that. They, you know, they, they go out at a certain effort in the run. And when they go out at the same heart rate on the bike, they seem to have to work harder. Mm. Likewise, even more so in the water. Um, hard to, you know, the, the, the signal doesn't <clears throat> transmit in the water, but you can figure out your heart rate easily in the, in the water. Um, but yeah, and, you know, just 
just a, a very important concept about fatigue is that we fatigue all day long when we're not training, not racing. <laughs> yeah. We are always fatiguing. That's why we have to sleep because we need recovery. But if you do, uh, we'll, we'll maybe talk about the MAF test, but if you test yourself, which I always had people do, um, five miles was, was a typical distance uh, for people uh, or something similar. And with, with the GPS monitors now, you can just uh, do an MAF test on your typical run course if it's not too hilly. Yeah. Uh, but but your goal is to monitor yourself to see if you're getting faster at that same training submax heart rate, that MAF heart rate. Mm. And what you'll find is you 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 will slow down mile by mile. That is normal. And the reason you slow down is because of fatigue. So even a a short run with you know just training easy aerobically you you in that little window you can see a fair amount of fatigue i mean you may you may be 30 to 60 seconds in your last in your mile five compared to your mile one and how are we getting faster? So what's going on? Obviously, we're building capillaries, we're beating, building mitochondria. Um, so a big question that people would have math versus going at a higher intensity. As you said, in three months, you can cross your fingers, hope that those more anaerobic training sessions, which do build capillaries, mitochondria um, at a faster rate, but you're building it in a more more anaerobic state um, for to get better at the math kind of pace, it does require you to fatigue the muscles through training for longer hours to get that capillary and and mitochondria building up. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. Um, I, I I think. Your your real question is how in the world can you get faster by training slower? Yeah, what's happening? You know, that's the that's the that's the question. My most popular article was an article that's probably um, thirty some odd years old. It's called "Watt Speed Slow Down," mm. and um, and it's gone through several versions because I've 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 understood the science better and better as the science, you know, comes out with new studies. As it um, catches up with you. <laughs> as it catches up with the, the clinicians. You know, we, I always knew what I, I didn't always know, but I, I would know what I wanted to do with an athlete. But if I couldn't explain it scientifically, it was okay. Mm. Um, and uh, because I knew it was going to work. But and, nowadays I would jump in and say that, you almost need the science because of the herd mentality of going against the grain by doing the slowing down. Well, yes, you, you, I, we always needed the science and mm. I always had the science in the day, but mm. as the years went by, the science got better because they did studies and mm. I was able to apply them for what I was doing as, as did other people. And um, the herd mentality doesn't always follow the science because herd mentality by nature is illogical. Mm. And so um, that's a problem. But 
But what happens is as you train at this slower level, you train your body to be a better fat burner. And as you eat better, you train the body to be a better fat burner much more than your training does. But you put the two together and wow, you become a, an endurance monster mm. uh, because now you can convert more fat to energy, which means you potentially have more and more energy. Mm. And what is it that we miss when we're out there training and racing? The more energy we have, the faster we can go. And the less oxidative so, stress yeah, produced during yeah, the exercise. Yeah, less oxidative stress, more more health uh, uh, related things that are happening. And uh, so we're doing less damage to our bodies. And, mm. you know, look at some of the athletes uh, who over the years have trained well versus those who didn't, you know, and where are they at today? And mm. I don't um, want to get into that. Yeah. But and, um, and sleep, I mean, there's studies saying that uh, a night, one late night with poor sleep, you'll be more insulin resistant the next day. So clearly you're adding you're not getting rid of the previous day's stress if you have a poor night's sleep, which makes you less fat burning capable the next day, even without differences in training or diet. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if people, if people understood that they get more out of their training during recovery than they do from training, they would, they would think twice about, you know, getting up, getting up early to swim because that's when the pool opens, even though they're not ready to wake up and they've only had six hours or five and a half hours of sleep mm. or whatever. Um, that recovery is, is so, so vital to, to um, uh, the training effect that you're, you're trying to get. And, the, and of course, uh, recovery uh, before a race is important and that's where tapering uh, comes in. When you have a good aerobic system, tapering for a marathon for two weeks of slowly, you know, bring your your training volume and intensity down over two week period. And for the Ironman, I, I like to do even more than two weeks, three three weeks or more um, is is nice. And and you can let your heart rate guide you if you're able to run at a faster heart rate. Uh, you're you're doing okay. Um, and just to put it in perspective, we were talking about Mark, uh, that first day on the track, uh, that I worked with Mark, he was running at about, he, he remembers that, you know, when we talk, it's like, oh, is that what you remembered? <laughs> he remembered that he was at an 820 pace, 820 per mile at his 155 heart rate. I remember <laughs> at a nine minute pace, it, the difference may be that. The next morning, he went out for a run on the roads, and I, it might have averaged nine minutes because he had some up, ups and downs. Mm. But he was, you know, he was clearly depressed, and um, but he stuck with it, and he ended up getting faster and faster. The eight twenty right. turned to seven twenty eventually, and then six twenty, and then five twenty, mm. or faster. Actually, so every time he got faster, he was able to race faster as well. Mm. And I often try to tell people, as you said, you've got to listen to your body on race day. And partly if you've done a good taper, if you were really fit and then you've done a good taper, that you, 
and you slept well and all of these factors, you're actually healthier on the start line than you had been in quite a while because you're fully recovered. So there is the potential yep. that on race day, your heart rate can go a bit high and you'll still be more as aerobic as you were during training at a lower heart rate, would you say? That's possible. Yeah. Mm. That, that's, you know, because you're adapting to stress better and mm. that's really the stress game. It's not, you know, can we get rid of all our stresses? We can't do that. We can get rid of the ones that are just stupid stresses, like wearing bad shoes and having um, a dental problem that we're not taking care of. These things mm. affect us as athletes, just like anybody else. Mm. And um, so we get rid of the stresses that we can get rid of. And then the ones we can't get rid of as we get healthier, we adapt to those stresses better so they don't hurt us as much. Mm. And that would require becoming more connected with ourselves. I guess, as you know, learned, I've learned from you that technique is such a big part of staying, I guess, aerobic and training in a healthy environment um, so that you're aware if your shoulders are tensing up, if your nervous system is getting agitated, if your brain is starting to be anxious about a million things you've got to do for the rest of the day. Um, so technique is such a big part of that and we get in bad habits and we think, well, I've always run this way. So I need to hold this core really, really strong. And that's the way that I run and trying to break out of these mental habits of poor technique or overthinking technique. What, what do you say to people to try and get them to connect with their body and relax their body? Yeah, that's a good technique. question. Uh, it, it's a difficult thing in modern societies because we 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 don't teach that. We don't teach the awareness of our body. Um, you know, in school, that's where we. You know, kids need to understand. You know, little little infants and mm -hmm. and toddlers, they're totally aware of their body, and so they are dumbed down in this regard as they get older. Um, and it's, it was one of the things I really enjoyed working with Mark about is that I, I had a hard time with many athletes, um, getting them to feel their bodies, getting them to be intuitive and using their instincts. And Mark seen, he, he, he was already there and that was very helpful for him and for me. Um, and. Um, and people who can do that generally work better. Um, again, we tend to we tend to uh, want to categorize things like gait. Here's what our gait should be when we mm -hmm. run. Uh, uh, the knee should do this, and the arm should. You know, you try to figure that out. If you're a kinesiologist, you can't figure that out because the brain is doing it. It's this big orchestra that the brain is conducting, and we don't even know that much about gates to consciously tune in on every component of our physical body. It just, it just can't happen. But instead, if we get our aerobic system working better, those aerobic muscles will allow our gait to function better, quite often better than ever. And um, that's, a big, that's a big part of it, is, is getting those aerobic muscle fibers working because when those aerobic muscle fibers are doing their job over time, even though they fatigue a little bit, they don't, they don't fatigue that much. Mm. 
And if you look at a, a, a an athlete in a race who's got a really good aerobic system, an aerobic foundation, that aerobic base that I often talk about, um, their gait is good even at the end of the race. But those who don't have a good gait, they start falling apart in, in you know even before the, the, the halfway point. Yeah. Um, would you men- recommend that being more aware of your breath and breathing more into your belly can be a good way to connect that awareness so that you aren't carrying excess tension mentally or physically nose breathing, for example. Yeah, I, I, I don't, yes, it can be very helpful. Nose breathing can be very helpful. Learning to read, learning to breathe properly instead of reversing your breathing, which some people do when they're stressed. You know, when I, when I, um, when I lecture and when I talk about breathing, I'll often ask, um, you know, who, who spends a lot of time strength training? Um, and I'll, I'll pick a man, you know, who, who's willing to come up and demonstrate, you know, because I want them to take off their shirt. And I'll turn them sideways and I'll, you know, I'll have the, the audience watch them breathe. And I'll say, okay, I want you to take a deep breath. And they will pull in their gut and stick out their chest. And I said, that's, that's backwards. That's not how you breathe in. You pull in your belly when you want to breathe out. You push out your belly when you want to breathe in. And so one of the things we have to make sure an athlete does is breathe properly. They, they need to understand how inhalation and exhalation works from a physical standpoint and you know once they get that then they can start experimenting with how little breath do they need and so can they go out for a workout without breathing through their mouth Hmm. some can and some can and so there's a lot of things to to think about but relaxation begins by training for relaxation. Um, if you haven't trained that, if you don't understand what it even means, getting to the starting line um, is going to be a stressful event. And so uh, for me, a big part of training was um, understanding what relaxation is, what what stress reduction is. And, and a lot of that comes to brain waves and learning to control your states of consciousness. Because when we're in a a state of consciousness that is stressful, um, that's a big problem if we're an athlete it, for anybody. And so I would, I would often have people uh, spend some time lying down, listening to music, um, and do their deep breathing, normal, healthy breathing. And um, that shifts their gear in, the, in terms of the state of consciousness into an alpha state. And you may do that what you know if you're if you get good at it, you may do that during a run during mm-hmm. a bike you know i I get into alpha I could easily get into alpha and I, in fact, I got rid of my road bike because I would go out for a ride uh and get lost you know where I, <laughs> in the air because i'd be I'd be zoned out, I'd just be riding. I would end up somewhere and I'd say, oh, where am I? And 
of course, I would only take a two-hour lunch when I had my clinic. And if I came back two and a half hours later, everybody would get mad at me. And so I, uh, that's when I switched to just my mountain bike. Um, but, but it just, you know, w we should be able to have a relaxing brain uh, when we're training aerobically, certainly. If we're on a track and we're doing some fartlek workout or some high-intensity training, you don't want to be relaxed, of course. But um, being relaxed in a race, now it's tricky. Now you've got that high intensity, you're sympathetic, you, you're, you're all out, whether it's aerobic or not, you're all out. And a big key to relaxing is being within yourself. If you're, if you're constantly thinking about your competition, that's not going to work. And a lot of athletes I worked with, that was the, that was the key feature of turning them into a good racer, into a great racer. Um, racing within yourself. You could do this, that, and that. You could do all these things, and you could probably do them better on race day, better than you think. But you can't change anything about this guy coming up on your, your tail. I chatted so, to Peter Defty last week, and one of the, the key aspects was same as this that we talked about, and he's learned a lot from you. Um, and it was about, he said, quiet confidence. And, and that's the way I went into Hawaii. And it is that the, the quiet confidence allows you to be in the moment so you don't have those thoughts and ego of future or past thoughts. Um, it allows your nervous system to be calmer and more relaxed because you're not worried about things because you have that confidence. So it's amazing how the word confidence is connected kind of to not having an ego, to not having anxiety um, and such a huge area that you mentioned, just how the brain needs to be in that alpha state while you're exercising and that you need to train it. And the first thing that, that we have in our program that Jamie and I have is just three times a day for 30 seconds is to stop and breathe into your belly and think of nothing. And I mean, it's not easy for anyone. You, you have to train that ability to turn it off. And right. And you know, it, and it's, it, it's, it's sad that we have to train mm -hmm. to do that. It, it's sad that I had to train, you know, when I was in college, when I first went to college, when I started seeing all these things, um, it's, it's sad that I have to teach people how to do it. You and Jamie have to teach people how to do it. It's sad because kid, you know, little toddlers know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And again, we've been detrained and now we have to get that back into our lives. And it's unfortunate that society has screwed up the brain that much of so many people, um, and uh, again, it's a lot of the no pain, no gain, and the 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 myths that we we learn along the way, and um, you know, re, retraining is, yeah. is 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 really the word we should be using, not training. Yeah, I see it as a as a, almost a de evolution, because we evolved, you know, kind of doing things like killing animals and eating animals and and all of these things. 
Um, but then we evolved this ability to be, you know, empathetic and compassionate and imagine things. And that's the, that's the key. We are the only species that is capable of imagining something that does not exist. And, you know, I'm always looking at our two dogs. I've got, I've got two dogs in here sleeping on the couch here, <laughs> two rescue pups. And I'm always looking at them because, you know, we'll go out and exercise and get sunshine and then they come back and they'll sleep and they'll go between the sun and the shade. And they're not thinking of anything else in that moment. They can't imagine something that doesn't exist. And that's pretty much what we're keeping our minds busy with. With ego, it's something that does not exist. Um, with being a, dare I touch on it, but the the vegan movement that has this feeling towards an animal that doesn't exist. Like that's just how life happens. Things die. We had to eat these things to evolve. And we did it because we didn't have this capacity to create thoughts and feelings that don't exist or aren't necessary for our evolution as we evolved. That didn't, we weren't thinking of those things, but now we've got to a point in evolution where we're actually with stress, with these anxieties, with these thoughts of things that don't exist, that we're yeah, actually yeah. causing ourselves major problems. Well, I can tell you as a biologist, and any biologist can tell you this, that when we pluck a carrot out of the ground, it is still alive and it feels what we're doing. <laughs> and when we take a bite of it, You know, they 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 developed this this food thing in Japan a few years ago where they would serve uh, shrimp and lobster live, mm. and you would eat it; it would still be living, mm. um, and and people would be grossed out. I said, "Well, you you do the same thing with vegetables and fruits. Mm. You know, a lot of them, at least, are still alive by the time you get them." And there was probably a so, caterpillar uh, on that on that lettuce leaf. <laughs> there was a caterpillar hiding that you. Well, hey, there probably you wasn't a caterpillar, but there were definitely animals hidden away there. Mm. A bunch of bugs. Bugs Next were a big part and... of the human the human diet early mm. early on. Bugs were were very uh, a very important source of protein um, for bugs. And and in the beginning, human the earliest humans ate a lot of. Um, mostly animal products, mostly fat. We didn't eat a lot of protein. We ate a lot of fat. We we ate brains, mm. and we ate bone marrow, and we ate bugs because <clears throat> we were able to break the skull open mm. when a when a, a you know when a lion would would take down an animal and gorge on uh, all the all the organs and glands and eat some of the meat. Um, the lion usually didn't break open the skull. Some of them could, but the, you know, not all mm. of them could. And so when the humans were able to come along and scavenge the rest, um, you know, they, they knew how to break open the skull and break open the big bones, get the marrow, which is, of course, all fat, not all fat, but very, very high amounts of fat. Our brain is 60, 65% fat. And so um, that's how humans... Uh, as as scavengers, such, mm. as scavengers early on, before they learned to hunt, um, that's how humans developed the energy, the aerobic energy, to build a bigger brain and bigger bodies that had more longevity and 
a better immune system to survive. And here we are today surviving. Many people are not. And, you know, the question is, if more than 80% of the world's population is overfat, what is the future of humanity? Mm. And that overfat caused by sugars, not fat. <laughs> Correct. Caused by sugars. And what, what's important is that the overfat as the, 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 the primary problem, then the trickle-down effects are all the chronic diseases, Mm. diabetes cancer heart disease and you had a paper your next paper is going to be more about this the effects of over fat and the trickle down yeah but i've i I mentioned that in the papers uh already and the 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 paper i uh published recently was about the over fat uh individuals who were most uh susceptible to covid19 no surprise so the overfat state increases the risk of infectious disease mm-hmm. uh, along with physical impairments. So we're not just talking about uh, the injuries that athletes tend to have, which are definitely related to, to inflammation, but body fat triggers the inflammation, which then triggers the itis conditions, plantar fasciitis, for example, um, arthritis, all the itis means inflammation. Um, all these nagging injuries, and of course, pain. Pain yeah. is directly associated with those inflammatory chemicals that are associated with with uh, with eating too much sugar, with eating even a small amount of sugar, and and uh, other refined carbohydrates. Mm. Um, I got one last question. Um, back to math and exercising and getting fat adapted. Um, older athletes that I've worked with that are on a very low carb diet, they're training really well. They're seeing progress in health, their weight's dropping, their performance is increasing, but because they're older, their math heart rate is at a starting point much lower than a younger athlete. So is it more likely that an older athlete can, can fudge that up going by feel, how their breathing is, their rate of perceived effort, and those factors and, and let their heart rate go up a bit more um, when they're feeling good? In other words, can older athletes cheat? <laughs> well, their improvement, I would say that the, their improvement is, is greater maybe. Well, older athletes can certainly improve more. There's no question about that. Um, can they fudge their heart rate, I mean, cheat by, you know, by rationalizing that, you know, they should have a higher training heart rate because they're a cool person or they're a nice guy or they're, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) the answer is no. Um, The problem is, and and if you really want to inform people who have done that, no, it says, if you're 65 years and over, uh, you may have to add, you may, that word may is often skipped, you may have to add 10 beats if, if you are healthy and fit and you don't have signs and symptoms and you have been preventing, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, 
Um, the reason for that is early on in the process for those first few years of developing the 180 formula, I didn't have a lot of athletes who were 65 and over. I didn't have people who, who were competing in any sport who were over 60. Um, so I didn't have enough data. But here's the bottom line. Do anything you want with your training, but do the MI test. See if your pace, your running pace, cycling power, whatever you want to measure, see if you can perform at a at a faster rate, at the same submax heart rate, as the weeks go by. If you can, then whatever you're doing working. Yeah. But if if you're not getting faster, if you've hit a plateau, or if you're actually slowing down, then something's wrong. Yeah. Um, and so my last question is um, on that. I have a couple of older athletes. <clears throat> One is over 65, and we have based his ability to push his heart rate on the run particularly on his ability to recover so basically we see if he's on days where he has pushed his heart rate and he's his you can he says you know his ego's gotten away from him a little bit we just can see on those days when the recovery takes instead of just a day it's three days and so we know we've got this limit of what we don't go near on the run. Yeah, we we have this great aerobic system, and when we use it to work out, we should recover by the next day, and we shouldn't be sore. We shouldn't have pain. That's what the aerobic system does. And if you're lifting weights in a way that does that, you can lift weights every day, but most people don't know how to do that. So they have to wait three days because the muscles are so cheap that they are sometimes painful. And if you're running, needing to recover only for three days, that's a big problem. And so, you know, finding the, the main heart rate problem for most people, there's very rarely a time uh, and, and it's, you know, MAF is, is not only for certain people, it's for everybody, because this is how human physiology is. And you could read that paper on um, the math theory about how the heart rate was developed and um, what the physiological aspects are and so forth. But, um, and can people come up with a, a different system to figure it out? Uh, recovery is a nice system. But I haven't found one yet, and I've been playing around with things for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I just turned off my video, so it might be a bit clearer, and it seems to have worked a little bit, but I'm still here. Um, so, yeah, Phil, that's amazing. We've covered so much. Um, I think there's a bit of something for everybody in this conversation, and um, I'm sure people will get some questions out of it um, that we can follow up in the future but yeah anything else you want to add um now at the end to about yourself i mean obviously your your website is incredible wealth of free resources but what else do you want to mention yeah and there's a new uh ebook that's free called the math method which sort of 
is a, a condensed um, uh, book on that big picture we talked about in the very beginning uh, of all the components of maximum aerobic function. Um, and um, I encourage people to, to read that. And I encourage people to read everything and anything they can get their hands on that appears to be um, uh, well, well written. Um, I would encourage people to avoid the, the magazines because there are, there are often, you know, that, that system one, system two that we talked about mm. uh, comes into play there where people are, are given the hype and, and not the, the facts quite often. Mm. Well, um, but there's a lot of good stuff in the, in the medical library. All of my mm. scientific papers have a, um, um, a press release uh, on my website so they can read uh, the gist of the article uh, without going through all the science. Although when I write a scientific paper, I do so in a way that um, is, is legible for a lot of people. I, I, I learned uh, long ago when I, 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 I've done a lot of teaching um, with audiences, you know, with doctors and, and um, academics. And I, I, I just learned the hard way, really, that the simpler you could make it without insulting them, um, the more they'll understand. And, you know, some people write in a way that they, it, it seems like they're going out of their way to, to write, uh, to use big words um, uh, and, 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 you know, use, use 10 big words instead of five simple ones to get a concept across. Um, so I, I, I've learned uh, the hard way to, to, you know, do it in a way where, where um, when people read it, um, most people will, will understand. Um, and then and, for someone like and, myself, I've got no idea reading some of those papers. And then they might even switch the word that they're using to describe a certain process. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that happens all the time. It's really, it, it's, it's maddening. And, you know, when I, I, I encountered that as a student, I was learning, you know, I had this biochemistry course and I was learning these. Uh, we talked about it earlier, the, the generation of ATP, the Krebs cycle. Mm. And I'm I'm learning this thing, and it looks like a, you know, it looks like the Paris subway system, and you can't speak French, and and um, and I'm trying to memorize it because I know that's going to be the main part of the test, and and I'm looking in different textbooks, and I see another cycle. I said, oh, this looks similar, uh, but it it's called something different. Maybe I should learn this one too. And come to realize that it was the same one. It was just called something different. Yeah. And, you know, scientists can't make up their minds. Um, academics often um, uh, will, will have different names for the same thing and, and, and sometimes interchange them. And, um, and I, I can't, I just, it, it's annoying. And, um, um, <clears throat> And, 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 you know, they finally are getting away from some of these things um, where they, uh, somebody who discovers a certain process or a certain um, part of anatomy that hadn't been seen before and they, they attach their own name to it. Um, mm -hmm. That's, you know, Krebs uh, is, is one example. 
Um, the guy's name was was Krebs, and and um, and so we still use some of them, but those a lot of those names have gone away. So it's getting better, I hope, I think, um, and therefore getting easier. And um, um, uh, but I think I think the more people understand about their bodies, uh, the better they can be intuitive and 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 become you know better athletes become healthier athletes mm. and all your books do all of that so well the books that you wrote decades ago are still just as relevant and incredible resources um for this holistic approach and as we've said many times today like you can't have one thing and do one thing and and not change other stressful inputs in your life you have to have an holistic yeah. approach very very important and that's what your yeah your original books are incredible at, um, as well as there and the papers that you're putting out now really help people learn. Yeah, well, please please don't read the early books because <laughs> because they're outdated. Um, Just the the articles them, on the website. Then is that the that's probably I mean it's such a good resource that you send. Yeah, out the weekly. articles on the website are are great. They're they're relatively new, updated. Um, the two books that are the 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 most up to date are if you're a competitive athlete, the big book of endurance training and racing, it's called the big yellow book sometimes. And then for people who are not competitive athletes, there's the big red book, the big book of health and fitness, which kind of covers it from a perspective of um, uh, everyone else in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Phil. Um, and yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and so insightful. And hopefully we've explained some of these concepts that I know my followers are so interested in training aerobically, becoming better at fat burning, and at the same time becoming healthier. That I think today we've really given them a lot more of an insight and that big picture view that I am forever grateful for you, you pointing me down that, that journey. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm... I'm happy to to be here with you and and thanks again for having me and um it's always great to 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 talk with you about these things. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. And if what you've heard today resonates with you, then we'd love to hear from you. Jamie and I have incorporated these principles into our 12-week life program. It's takes you through changes that you need to make to drop your insulin resistance, to improve carbohydrate tolerance and improve your health, performance, fitness, mentally, emotionally, hormonally through 12 weeks, through all the holistic facets of lifestyle. We've seen these amazing results. We know it's been working for our clients and we know it will work for you. So get in touch now. Don't wait any longer. Don't live with these symptoms any longer. Contact us for a 15-minute chat so we can get to know each other and let you know more about it and see if we are the right fit for you. So have a great day and thanks very much for listening.